like you might turn in your Old Testaments to the book of Amos. We're going to look at the prophet Amos this evening. We've been looking at stories out of the Old Testament all week. While you're looking for that, I'd like to say it's a pleasure to be here once again. Appreciate the crowd that we've got. We have just had fantastic crowds all week long. And uh, really do appreciate visitors that are coming from other places and helping us and encouraging at this place. And if you're visiting with us from the community, we especially welcome you. Glad you're here. I want you to feel at home. Uh, Certainly appreciate your willingness to study the Bible together with us and be here in this place. Appreciate all the singing tonight. Appreciate the prayer, Brother Justin, as well. And and I hope the studies have been beneficial to you as well. Romans chapter 15 and verse number 4 says, For whatsoever things are written aforetime are written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. And so we've been looking at a lot of different things out of the Old Testament, looking at some Old Testament history and some stories out of the Old Testament. One reason for that is I'd like you to know the stories if you're not familiar with them. If you are familiar with them, maybe it's a good review for you. Secondly, though, I'd like you to take some application from some of these stories. There's a lot of things in the Old Testament that tell us about the character of God, the mind of God, what God expected of His people, etc. And then we always see that thread running through the Old Testament that brings us to Christ in the New Testament as well. So uh, thank you guys for being here and being a part of the study, and I hope that you find the study beneficial as well. Before we get into the book of Amos, I want to give you some of the background, give you some of the timeline like we did last night. And uh, first of all, starting with Abraham. Abraham had a promised seed, Isaac. Isaac had twins, Jacob and Esau. And it was through one side of those twins. Esau became the Edomites, a whole different people. We're going to talk about them tomorrow afternoon. But the the Jacobites, the Jacob's name was later changed to Israel, became the Israelites. And Jacob had 12 sons. And those 12 sons essentially became the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, there's a little bit of variance to be technical. Uh, Levi didn't possess part of the land, etc. And there were some other things that took place. But essentially, the 12 sons of Jacob became the 12 tribes of Israel. You can see on this slide that I've got before you that it was through that fourth son of Judah. If you go through the lineage of Matthew chapter 1, you're going to end up with Christ. Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 16 says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not into seeds as of many, but as of one into thy seed, which is Christ. So we've got a connection from Abraham that brought us Christ. And a lot of the Old Testament is that thread that's showing us that lineage and showing us how Christ got here in the New Testament as well. So Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob and Esau. From the Jacob side, there were 12 sons of Jacob, became the 12 tribes of Israel. Now those 12 tribes of Israel, through the story of Joseph and Moses, the end of uh, the book of Genesis uh, they ultimately and after wandering in the wilderness for 40 years they ultimately were able to come into what we call the land of Canaan or the land of Palestine the land of Israel and at this point in time it's Palestine and they're wanting to come in conquer this land and and you remember how ultimately 
that the first city was taken, and that was the Battle of Jericho. How they walked around one time a day around the city as God commanded. On the seventh day, they walked around it seven times, and then they shouted with a great shout. The walls came, blew the trumpets, the walls came tumbling down, and they overtook that city, one of the great battles of the Old Testament. And there they were able to inhabit this land, and this land was divided up between those 12 sons of Jacob, or the 12 tribes of Israel. So you've got the tribe of Judah with a certain amount of space, certain amount of land. The tribe of Simeon with a certain amount of space. Gad, Manasseh, Naphtali, Asher, etc. Uh, Dan, Reuben. All those different tribes all got a certain section of land. And we talked about how for about 450 years God set up a system of judges. Everybody seemed pretty happy with that until finally the people started crying out, we want a king. And you remember how God said, you don't want a king. In fact, there's three reasons you don't want a king. Number one, they're going to want an army and they're going to take your young men. Number two, somebody's going to feed and clothe the army. They're going to take your young women. Number three, somebody's going to pay for that army. He's going to tax you real heavy. You don't need a king. They wanted a king anyway. They want to be like all the other kingdoms around them. And we read of three different kings in succession one to another. Saul, David, and Solomon that reigned in that united kingdom of the 12 tribes of Israel. Saul, David, and Solomon were each reigned for about 40 years apiece. So 120 years goes by. Solomon dies. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, goes to the young man and says, How do I lead God's people? And the young men say, if you think he ruled with his thumb, you need to rule with a fist. It, you need to really put it hard on him. And he went to the old men and said, how, do you, how should I rule God's people? And they said, be easy with them. You know, lead them with grace and, and they'll follow you if you'll just be careful with them. He took the young men's advice. And because of that, it created a division in the kingdom. And you'll notice here on the left side of the screen, when that division happened, there were ten tribes went to the north and two tribes to the south. The ten tribes to the north were known as Israel. The two tribes to the south were known as Judah. So there's a period of time in the Old Testament when you're reading your Bible and you read about the king of Judah and the king of Israel. That's after that kingdom was divided. There is a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Rehoboam was the president or the king of the southern kingdom. Jeroboam was the king of the northern kingdom. Now to set the stage... A couple of things that were happening for the book of Amos is the northern kingdom had a problem. The northern kingdom, see, everybody would have to worship at Jerusalem. That was in the southern kingdom. So Jeroboam thought, well, I tell you what, let's set up a place to worship in the north side. Or let's set up some places to worship in the north side. And you'll notice it's kind of difficult to see on this map, but you see Bethel is right here versus Jerusalem down to the south. Benjamin and Judah were the two kingdoms or the two tribes to the south. But Bethel was set up in the northern uh, side of those king or northern side of the kingdom or the kingdom of Israel because Jeroboam didn't want his people to go to the south to worship. He wanted to set up a place of worship in the northern kingdom so they didn't have to go do that. Well that created a problem. And now we've got Amos on the scene. Amos is called to be a prophet of God. Amos is from the south 
But he's preaching to the people of the north. He's been given a prophecy to go talk to those people to the north. And he, even though he's not from the north, he's prophesying God's words to him. To give you a little bit of a time frame for this Bible history timeline, we talked a little bit about like there's creation, there's 2013 that we live in today. AD 1 would be the time of Christ's birth right here. Preceding AD 1, AD means Anio Domini or the year of our Lord. It means the year our Lord was born. Everything after His birth like 2013 is AD 2013. That means we're approximately 2013 years after the birth of Christ. Now I know some of you are sitting there thinking, why isn't there an AD 0? But actually technically it started with AD 1. AD A is an apple, D is in David, the number one. Everything previous to that is known as BC. And BC stands for before Christ. Now, 605 years before Christ, the southern kingdom went into Babylonian captivity, stayed for 70 years. Before God put it in the heart of Cyrus, the king, to allow him to rebuild. You can look at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and you can find those stories. But in 723 B.C., which was before the Babylonian captivity, Assyria came and overtook the ten tribes to the north. And that happened in 723 B.C. We looked at it last night when we looked at the uh, King Sennacherib and the story of Hezekiah. It was during those days that they were taken into captivity. Now I'm backtracking just a little bit from that story tonight. And this story is dated about 740 B.C. Amos is prophesying to the northern tribes of Israel, to the ten tribes of the north. And he's essentially saying destruction's coming your way. And that's what happened not very many years later in 723 B.C. Okay, So in 740 we've got Amos on the scene and he's preaching destruction to the northern tribes coming out of the south. He's preaching to the northern tribes. And I want you to open up your Bible if you would and I want you to look at some of the things that he talks about. Let me give you a little bit of background of Amos. Amos chapter 1 and verse number 1. The words of Amos, which was among the herdmen of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So when we open up the book of Amos, we've got nine chapters of the book of Amos. When we open up the book of Amos, the very first thing we know is we've timed it at 740 and we know that that time frame is during a divided kingdom that's taking place because he talks about the fact that he was his history was a herdman, but then he talked about Uzziah was the king of Judah and Jeroboam was the king of Israel or the north at the time of this prophecy. Now he gives you a little bit about his background in Amos chapter 7 verse number 14. He says I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son. But then he said I was an herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. Most people would render that that fruit was figs. That he was a sycamore feed, fig farmer. That's hard to say. Sycamore fig farmer. And he was a herdman. He, he, he shepherded over flocks and that kind of thing. And cared for flocks. And then we find the Lord took me as I followed the flock and the Lord said unto me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Now, he's just a herdsman. He's out doing. God comes to him and says, I want you to go prophesy. I want you to give this prophecy to Israel that destruction's coming their way if they don't change, if they don't accomplish what it is that they need to accomplish. Now, 
Oh. Let's walk in our Bibles for just a moment. Amos. You know the background? You know he's a herdsman? He's been given this prophecy to go prophesy? I want you to skip to Amos chapter 2. Verse number 4. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have despised the law of the Lord, and have not kept His commandments, and their lies caused them to err, after which their fathers have walked. Now if you walk through Amos chapter 2, he goes through a lot of the tribes, and he says, now, well, starting out early on, he says in verse number 4, uh, Judah, he said verse number 2, he's, uh, or verse number 1, for the transgressions of Moab. Uh, skip down if you would later on and he talks about for the transgressions of you find another one very quickly uh, for six for the transgressions of Israel uh, now I want you to read verse number 6 thus saith the Lord for three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof because they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes so I want you to notice that he's just given these declarations these prophecies he said I'm going to destroy you because you've not been following me you've not been listening to my commandments you've not been doing you've been treating the poor badly and I want to go to chapter 4 for just a moment Chapter 4, verse number 1. He said, Hear this word, ye kine of Bashan. Now, kine, if you were going to look up that word, would, would mean cattle. And he said, basically, you're a bunch of herds of cattle. You're, you're a herd of cattle. You've got this herd mentality that you're going out and you're just cattle is what you are, is out there. And he said, I want to warn you, you're in the mountain of Samaria. Now, to get you in the context of that, let me back up to that map. See if I can get there quickly. Right there. Samaria is a region. Jerusalem is a city. Samaria is a region in the area. And he says, I'm preaching to those that are in Samaria, to Israel. He said, you oppress the poor. You crush the needy. You say to their masters, bring and let us drink. The Lord God has sworn by His holiness and lo, the day shall come upon you that He'll take you away with hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. And you'll go out at the breaches every cow at that which is before her and you shall cast them into the palace, said the Lord. So first of all, He says, you're a bunch of cattle out here and you don't care about poor people. In fact, you're crushing the needy. If somebody is needy, you're, you're making fun of them, you're, you're even bragging about the fact that you're rich or you're wealthy and you don't have to do the things that needy people have to deal with. And so you tell them, go get me a drink and come back. And you're just, you're just crushing those people around. You don't care for the poor at all. Keep reading if you were to verse number 4. Come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgression and bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes after three years. And offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. And proclaim and publish the free offerings. For this liketh you, O ye children of Israel, saith the Lord. Now, stop here for just a moment. I just want you to notice as, as we pause here that he says, go to Bethel and transgress. Now, this is the guy from the south preaching to them at the north. You've gone to Bethel which they had set up this other place to worship. He said, you go to Bethel and you worship there. You go transgress there. Because you're not doing what God told you to do. You're not worshiping the way God asked you to worship. You're not doing what it is God told you to do. You go to the north and you go to Bethel and you transgress there. Multiply thy transgressions in Gilgal. 
And we'll look at some of the other things that's mentioned there a little more in just a moment. Verse number 7, chapter 4. He said, Also I have withholden the rain from you when there were yet three months to harvest, and I caused it to rain upon one city and caused it not to rain upon another city. One piece was rained upon, and the piece whereupon it rained, rained not withered. So two or three cities wandered into one city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Yet have they not returned unto me, saith the Lord. He said, I had smitten you with blasting and mildew. When your gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees increased, the palmer worm devoured them. Yet have you not returned unto me, saith the Lord. I have sent among you the pestilence after the manner of Egypt. Your young men have I slain with the sword and have taken away your horses. And I have made the stink of your camps to come up into your nostrils. Yet you have not returned unto me, saith the Lord. I have overthrown some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were as a firebrand plucked out of the burning. Yet you have not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Therefore thus will I do unto thee, O Israel. And because I will do this unto thee, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. Five times in chapter 4 he says you wouldn't return to me. And he says here's what I did. He said I brought rain and I caused it to rain on one piece of land here and caused it not to rain on another piece of land. And this piece of land didn't have rain and therefore the crops withered. And this piece of rain did. And you should have been able to determine these were the people that were following God and these were the people that weren't. He said I took your crops and I I smote you with blasting and mildew. I love that phrase. That's basically saying I sent disease through your crops. They basically molded up and mildewed up and I sent disease through them. And you still didn't wake up to the fact that this is coming from God. This is chastisement coming from God. He said I, the stench came up into his nostrils because he slayed, slayed their young, his young men in battle. And he brought pestilence and all those sort of things into their life. All these things were God sending his chastisement down upon them because they would not serve God. They would not believe in God properly. They didn't trust in him. And all these things happened to them and they wouldn't return to God. Keep reading if you would in chapter 4. He said, For lo, verse number 13, For lo, he that formeth the mountains and created the wind and declareth in a man what is his thought that maketh the morning darkness and treadeth upon the high places of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Do you remember us last night talking about God is sovereign? This is just a reminder. He says, I brought all these things to you to wake you up, but you wouldn't return to me. He said, I just want to remind you of the fact. This is the Lord, the God, the God Jehovah. He is the one. The Lord God is His name. And He's the one that sent these things to you and you ignored Him. You don't ignore God. That's the message here. You don't ignore God. Skip down, if you would, to chapter 6. He talks a little bit in chapter 6 about the people of Israel, the northern tribes of Israel. And he starts off with verse number 1 and he says, Woe to them that are at ease in Zion. See, they were lazy. They had gotten lazy. They were at ease in Zion. Okay? Which were named chief among the nations to whom the house of Israel came. Skip down if you would to verse number 4. That lie upon beds of ivory, stretch themselves upon their couches, eat lambs out of the flock and calves out of the midst of the stall. That chant to themselves... Uh, chant, to them, chant to the sound of the violin, invent to themselves instruments of music like David, that drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the chief ointments, but they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. You know, he, here in chapter 6, 
He's saying, you've gotten lazy. You lie upon beds of ivory. Uh, you're eating calves out of the midst of the stall, lambs out of the flock. Uh, you're, you're listening to the sound of the vial. All you do is you're laying around listening to music and eating and drinking and all that sort of stuff. You've just flat gotten lazy. Woe to them that are at ease in Zion. That's the warning that's happening. Now, have you ever known anybody that just sat around on the couch, lied, laid upon their couches or lied upon their beds of ivory and all they did is they wanted to lay around and be couch potatoes and listen to music and eat and drink and they were just lazy? That's what he said the children of Israel had gotten to. Go to chapter 7 if you would. Chapter 7 to me is a little amusing in one section here that I want to point out to you. Verse number 7. Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord stood upon a wall made by a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said unto me, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, A plumb line. Then said the Lord, Behold, I will set a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not again pass by them anymore. The Lord says to him, Amos, what do you see? Because he said, There's a man standing there with a plumb line in his hand. He said, What do you see? And Amos says, a plumb line? It's kind of like, is this a trick question? You know, kind of thing. Now, I want to show you all something about a plumb line. A plumb line, if you guys are not familiar with a plumb line, is something that you would use on a construction job site if you were building a house or build a building of some sort. And a plumb line is a weight. You'll notice it's got a point on it. And that allows you to take a point from which it's hung and you can develop a vertical line with a plumb line. And you can determine from this point or maybe from the top of a wall, doing a lot of spin in there, you can determine from the top of a wall whether a wall is plumb or not. Now a lot of times in our common vernacular today when we get out on a, a construction job site, people say, well that wall's not level. That's not really level this way. Level is this way. You know, a floor is level. A wall is plumb or it's not plumb. And here God is saying, I saw a person by a wall with a plumb line in his hand. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And he said, a plumb line. Very good. Very observant. And you know, what is he saying? And let me tell you what a plumb line is insinuating or, or is teaching. You know, when you build a plumb line, it tells you what's right and what's wrong. That wall is either plumb or it's not plumb. It's either correct or it's not correct. There's a line of judgment that God is putting to the children of Israel that says, I've set a standard. And that standard is... It's either right or it's wrong. And I want to tell you, Israel, you're not right. And that wall is what you're going to be measured by, or except it's not the wall. The plumb line is what you're going to be measured by. And you're going to find out your wall's leaning. And he's essentially saying, judgment's coming. And there's going to be a plumb line set. And that plumb line's going to determine what's right and wrong. Because you can sit there all day long and go, well, I, it looks plumb. I think it's plumb. But it's not an issue of thinking it's plumb. I want to tell you, God's got a plumb line. And it's going to determine whether it's plumb or whether it's not plumb. Okay, does that make sense to you? Now I want you to take some lessons from Amos tonight. There are several things I think are important for us to, to walk away with. I need to get back up to my 
slide. Number one is he reminds us of how we ought to be toward the poor. He said one of the things that destroyed the nation of Israel was they crushed the needy. They didn't have a good attitude toward those that were poor. And he said in chapter 4, verse number 1, Hear this word, ye kind of Bashan that are in the mountain of Samaria, which oppress the poor and crush the needy. And I want to tell you, maybe there's something that's said even of us today of our real true character in how we treat the poor. And in that, I want you to be careful. I'm not, I'm not insinuating that that means every time somebody asks for money, you give them money and that kind of thing. Sometimes that may not be being a good steward of what the Lord's blessed you with. If they go and take it and use it for purposes they shouldn't use it for, maybe, maybe we're enabling people in some cases to do things. I recognize those situations. I realize sometimes they're very complex. But I'm just saying down deep in our heart, our attitude needs to not be boastful and proud as though, see, we're living, we have advantage, we've got money in our pocket, we're somebody, and see these other folks over here that may be less fortunate or may not have money in their pocket or whatever, and we become these people that have an attitude against poor people as though always it's their fault. And I will tell you, and I just want you to consider the fact that sometimes those that are poor are not poor because they made decisions of themselves. They may not have had the same opportunity as you. They may not have had the same opportunity for education as you. They may not have had the same opportunity for income as you. They may have had sickness or disease or other things that affected them in some sort of way that kept them from having opportunity like you. And all I'm saying is, what one of the things that brought down Israel was an attitude, a bad attitude about poor people. And I want us to be careful that our hearts don't grow hard to those that may be less fortunate. There's something to be said of the Christian heart that says we're willing to distribute, that we're willing to share, that we're willing to care, that we're willing to help. You know, even Christ Himself said the poor will always be with us. There's going to be those that are less fortunate. And the reality is maybe we ought to have a heart that cares about it is all I'm saying. I recognize every situation. Sometimes we have to sit down with folks and say, listen, we can't keep doing this. It's not helping you. I know that. But maybe our heart still ought to be one that says we care about you. We want to help you with maybe what you really need to get the help you need. So notice that Israel was brought down for that. They had the wrong attitude. And that was one of the things that destroyed them. Number two, they did not want to worship correctly. You remember the passage we looked at in Amos 4 and 4. Come to Bethel and transgress. One of the things that destroyed them was they had set up worship on the north side of that kingdom so that they wouldn't have to travel to the south. And they got to where they weren't concerned about God's worship at all. They weren't concerned about coming to Jerusalem. They weren't even concerned. Pretty soon it turned into idol worship. It turned into false gods and altars and things that had nothing to do with God. They had the wrong worship. They not only had a wrong attitude about poor folks, they had the wrong worship and they didn't care. And he said, you're going to be destroyed because of that. And I would think it would be imperative for us today to be thinking in terms of the correct worship and that worshiping God the way God asked to be worshipped rather than worshiping God the way I think God would want to be worshipped ought to be considered. You know, what was happening here with Israel is Israel wasn't concerned about what God asked for. Israel was concerned about their comfort. Well, we don't want our people to travel down there to worship. So let's set up a place over here. Well, that sounds convenient, doesn't it? That works because it's convenient to do that. 
Well, pretty soon it turns into idol worship and other kind of worship. And, and the people of Israel got to where they weren't concerned about what God wanted at all. And you know, one of the things we need to be concerned about is, God, how do you want to be worshipped? That, that ought to be a response that comes from us. We're concerned about what you want, God, rather than let's start building worship around what I want. Let's think in terms of what does God want in His worship. He said, come to Gilgal and multiply thy transgressions. You just continue to multiply the transgressions. He says, instead of offering your tithes as often as I've told you to, you're doing it every three years. He said, you're offering a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven instead of unleavened. You quit caring about what God asked for in the worship. You just decided you'd do it your own way. And because of that, Israel was going to be destroyed. Jesus taught us in John chapter 4, verse number 23 and 24, But the hour cometh that now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. For God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And I want to tell you tonight, we need to be reminded of the fact that God wants us to worship Him in spirit and in truth. He wants us to have the right attitude in worship. He wants us to have the right heart. He wants us to have the right worship. It needs to be in truth as well as in spirit. That's what God's asked of us today as well. Number three, they did not recognize chastisement when chastisement came their way. He said, I sent... I'll show you the verse here in verse number 9. We read it earlier. He said, I've smitten you with blasting and mildew when your gardens and vineyards and fig trees and your olive uh, trees increased, the palmer worm devoured them. He said... I brought all this pestilence your way and death your way and drought your way and all this sort of stuff. A palmer worm, by the way, if you're thinking to be like we would think of a boll weevil or, a, um, or some sort of uh, insect that eats your corn up and that kind of thing. Uh, and the reality is some sort of... And it, he would destroy their crops and they couldn't even recognize it was from God when that happened. Have you ever known anybody that continually made bad decisions and bad things happened to them, but they never could figure out it was because they were making bad decisions? Now, we've talked about it this week already. Not every time when bad stuff happens to you is it because of your bad decisions. Sometimes it's because of the decisions of others. Sometimes it's because of time and chance we talked about. It. Sometimes it's because of uh, God's providential care, etc. But sometimes decisions. You know? And there are times, and I know you guys have to have seen people in this, but, <clears throat> but they continually make bad decisions. Maybe at the age of two, they're just rebellious. And maybe mom and dad never teach the child to learn to submit to authority, which probably very early in a child's life is probably the most important thing you can teach a child very early. Because when they turn into teenagers, if they don't know how to submit to authority, there's a problem. And then they're too big to control in that situation, as opposed to a very young youngster that needs to be taught to submit. Um, you know, as a person continues to grow up, a teenager is hard to control, but a teenager needs to know how to submit to authority. A teenager may go to school and a teacher says, hey, I want you to do this or not do that. And that child needs to learn to submit to authority or he's in trouble. Well, if he doesn't submit to authority, where does he end up? In the principal's office. And if he continues to not submit to authority, one day he's driving and there's a police officer behind him and there's red and blue lights on. And he says, I don't
don't have to submit to authority. So he decides to outrun the police. Well, finally the police catch him and then they throw him into jail. And, and then pretty soon, what's he doing? He's submitting to authority because there's a jailkeeper at the door of that prison that's saying, you're going to lunch now, you're going to sit here, you're not going to do this, be quiet, we're going to shave your head, or whatever it is that they do in prisons nowadays. The reality is at some point in time, everyone submits to authority. You can do it behind bars or you can and learn to submit to authority to your parents and understand the concept of that. But you've seen people, you know what I'm talking about. People that continually make bad decisions in life. And they never can see that it's them making bad decisions. And they blame everybody else for the reason why bad stuff's happening. But, you know, they went out drinking and they got in a car wreck. And then they couldn't afford insurance because they had been in multiple car wrecks. And then they couldn't hold a job because they didn't have a car. And then because they couldn't hold a job, they couldn't pay rent. And because they couldn't pay rent, they couldn't... And it just continues and it multiplies and it gets worse and worse. And pretty soon, this guy's living under a bridge in Houston somewhere. I want to tell you, the guy living in a bridge under Houston, that didn't happen overnight. It happened through a series of bad decisions, generally speaking. It started off with, I'm, not, I'm going to do whatever I'm going to do, or I'm going to take drugs, or I'm going to take alcohol, or I'm going to whatever. And over time, those series of bad decisions ended up somebody under a bridge somewhere. And they never can look honestly and be self-aware and realize, hey... That's happening because I made that decision. I, I put the drugs in my system or I put the alcohol in my system or I, I made these bad decisions to, to drink and drive or whatever those decisions were. And their lives are destroyed and they can't ever figure out why. You know, you would think at some point in time somebody would sit back and they'd go, you know, those people don't live that way. And good things kind of generally kind of happen, generally speaking. I'm not saying bad things never happen to good people. They do, but their, their life is just different. We had a family going to church with us at home at one point in time that went over to another one of our church members' houses. They were new to the church. And they came into one of our church members' houses and, and they went in there and they sat in their house and they went, this is weird. And they said, what do you mean? And they said, your house is so peaceful. It's so quiet. And I will tell you, their house wasn't that way. They were in chaos all the time. Mom yelling at dad, dad yelling at mom, kids yelling at parents, parents yelling at kids. Everybody yelled at everybody all the time. They were always at this level. And they walk into a house where things are kind of normal and they're going, this is odd. I've never been in a place where there was peace. You know, you would think people that are living in chaos that have made a series of bad decisions would be able to look around and go, hey, maybe I've been making bad decisions and I need to do something different than what I've been doing. But a lot of times they don't do that. That's kind of the way Israel was. Israel kept having this bad stuff happening to them, but they never woke up to go, we're not following God. We keep doing the same thing we were going to do. We're going to keep crushing the needy and we're going to keep having a bad attitude. We're going to keep worshiping the way we think we want to worship. And all this bad stuff, it was God chastising them. He was trying to mold them and direct them and correct them. He was trying to bring them back. Five times in chapter 4 he says, Yet ye have not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Because you couldn't even recognize chastisement when it came upon you. You couldn't even recognize it was God loving you and trying to plead with you to come back to me. You couldn't even recognize it when it happened. Then that brings us to number four. They wouldn't repent. 
I told you five times in that chapter, here was this phrase, Yet ye have not returned unto me, saith the Lord. All this time, all the chastisement, all the things that we brought you wouldn't repent. And I ask you tonight, is that where your heart's at? That you've grown so cold that maybe regardless of even bad stuff that happened or whatever, you've gotten to a spot that you won't repent. You've gotten to a spot where your heart's not soft any longer. You've gotten to a spot where I just do whatever I want to do regardless. See, these folks had the wrong heart. They had the wrong worship. They had the wrong perspective about why bad things were happening. And they had the wrong answer, did they? Because they refused to repent. And I want to tell you the last thing there that's found in Amos chapter 4 and verse number 12. Amos prophesies to them and says, Prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. And I want to tell you they stayed in that condition. They got the wrong judgment too, didn't they? Not only did they have the wrong attitude and the wrong, uh, wrong worship and wrong perspective and wrong answer when it came time to repent, but they got the wrong judgment at the end. They got destruction is what they got. There was a plumb line that was set and that plumb line was set to determine what was right and what was wrong. And he says, Amos, what do you see? And he said, I see a plumb line. And that plumb line was determined to tell whether something was right or whether something was wrong. And he says, I put Israel up against that plumb line. And I want to tell you, they don't match up. What they're doing is wrong. Judgment's coming. Prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. We sing the song, Careless Soul. Why will you linger wandering from the fold of God? Hear ye not the invitation. Oh, prepare to meet thy God. I'm sure that songwriter took that from Amos chapter 4 and verse number 12. Because tonight, you need to hear those same words too. There's coming a day of judgment. And you need to prepare to meet God. Because there's going to be a standard that's set. book of Revelation said the books are going to be open. And we're going to be judged according to the things that were written in the books. Whether they be good or whether they be evil. And that plumb line will tell you whether it's right or whether it's wrong. God's Word will tell you whether it's right or it's wrong. And you tonight can have a bad attitude toward people. You could care less about how God wants you to worship. You can ignore the bad decisions you're making and ignore God trying to correct you in your life from bad things happening to you. You can sit there hard-hearted tonight and refuse to repent. But I want to tell you, judgment is still coming. The plumb line is going to be set and you're going to be judged according to the things that you've done, whether it's good or whether it's evil. Where do you stand tonight? We're going to sing the song that says, Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, I come. It doesn't matter your sin. It doesn't matter the iniquity that you've been involved in. What he's pleading with you tonight is to repent, to change. You can sit there with a hard heart tonight and say, I'll do whatever I want to do. Or you can say tonight, I want to prepare to meet God. And that means I want to measure up to the plumb line. I want to do what the plumb line tells me to do. As we sing this song, make your way to the front. Sit down on the front bench. I promise you the elders here with open arms want to receive you and accept you into the fold of God. They'd like you to be a part of this work and this ministry that happens here at this place. You've got an opportunity to hear this song to state your conviction of faith. That you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You've got an opportunity tonight to show that repentance and say, from this moment there's a point of change that's happening. I don't have a heart that refuses to repent. I've got a heart that's willing to change. You've got that opportunity tonight.
And I will tell you tonight, you've got an opportunity to confess His name before men, that you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that you're willing to be buried with Him in baptism to rise and walk in newness of life. Are you concerned about how God wants you to be to work or how God wants to be worshipped? Tonight, ask the question, what does the Bible teach that I should do? Not what does the world teach, not what does other folks teach. What is the Bible? What's the standard that says, how do I get into the kingdom of God? I want to tell you, you need to be baptized into Christ. First Peter chapter 3.21 said, The like figure wherein even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Acts 22 and 16, Ananias told Saul of Tarsus, Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Peter told him on the day of Pentecost, in Acts 2 and 38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. I want to tell you, the Bible teaches you need to be baptized to come in contact with the blood of Christ, to have your sins washed away for the remission of sins. You have that opportunity tonight. Maybe you're separated from God. Maybe you've been baptized, but you've walked away from God. You've separated yourself from Him. You've got an opportunity, an opportunity tonight to come home, to show repentance, to show works meet for repentance, fit for repentance, to come home. And I want to tell you tonight, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for thee, I come. I beg of you tonight. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, I would persuade men tonight. I would persuade you tonight, if it was at all possible for me to do that, to not leave these doors separated from God. Won't you come tonight while we stand and sing the song that's been selected? Oh, bases start out Yeah.